flavor. Pass. Today we are talking about Eric Weiss, more popularly known as Harry Houdini. He was born in 1874 in Budapest. Um, Budapest, Hungary. Yep, yep. And his family was Jewish. They left or fleed uh, for a better life in the United States. His dad went first, saved up money, and the rest of the family joined him. Harry, Eric was about four, and they moved to Wisconsin. At the age of eight, you know, he's working odd jobs, shining shoes, sold newspapers, classic young child type of work, helping, you know, get his family some money in this new country. Then at nine, he starred in a backyard circus him and his friends made. And even at that age, he called himself the Prince of the Air. He did stunts on like a homemade trapeze bar, uh, you know, hanging from a tree type of deal. But we don't really know what the truth is with this because in his later life, um, he would tell reporters whatever created a good image for him, made him seem mysterious. Um, at some reporters, he told he was performing escapes when he was nine. Some he told he was in a traveling circus at a young age. And really, he's just trying to create stories, stir publicity, kind of create this idyllic public image. So we don't really know, but we do know he was like doing acrobats from a tree with his friends when he was nine. I love that. He's got the true performer's spirit. Yeah. From a, from a young age. Yeah, exactly. Which I imagine, and it, when you go through his career, he didn't necessarily, it wasn't a, a one kind of trick that he had. He was kind of a jack of all trades, yeah. master of all trades kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. the fact that he was doing trapeze when he was a child is very uh, in line with how his kind of career went. Yeah, exactly. Performer in the truest sense. I imagine when he was a young child, he would say, hey, mom, watch me do this a lot. That's his personality. He, he loved the attention. Then at about 14, he moved to New York City with his dad, which is kind of interesting that his dad chose one of his sons, and it was Harry, Eric, uh, at age 14, even though Eric wasn't the oldest. Yeah, the idea was that they were going to move to New York, and they were going to kind of get set up. They lived in like a boarding home at first, and didn't have anywhere to live. They kind of, and then eventually the rest of the family came once they had kind of done well enough for themselves that they had enough money to get a place to live. Yeah, exactly. And then a very pivotal book young Eric read when he was 16 was The Memoirs of Robert Houdin, which is an autobiography of a French magician. And a few things here. One, this book was known for exaggeration and wild stories. This kind of magician is, you know, putting himself in the best light, making him seem like this exotic magician, kind of like Harry would do later. You know, he learned how to sell his stories. Oh, yeah. He was a... Uh who's a great entertainer he definitely he pushed the boundaries of it wasn't for him because it wasn't even doing the trick it was doing it in a way that made people think that he was this supernatural figure almost yeah uh, he had a real pizzazz about himself yeah exactly and much like his kind of hero robert Houdin, who and if you can't guess by the name this is where the legend of harry houdini begins he takes this last name from the French magician makes it Houdini, and then his family called him Harry, and he made that Harry, and thus 
Harry Houdini is born. Harry Houdini is a spectacular magician name. Yeah. Alliteration, double H's, great name, great name. It's like uh, the the popular modern musician now, David Copperfield. David mm-hmm. Copperfield is a name where I almost it almost sounds like he's disappearing as you say it. <laughs> Harry Houdini is the same thing. Like Harry Houdini, I feel like the words are, are escaping my mouth. Yeah, and David Copperfield, that's also, I believe, a created name, a stage name. I mean, it has to be. I think so. But David Blaine... That's his real name, I believe. Or is it? Yeah. Or is it? <laughs> or, or is it? You never know. Um, the, the greatest greatest trick he ever played was making you believe that there was no trick at all. Yeah. No, and we joke about this, but Harry Houdini would seriously make up stories about himself. He would lie about his birthday. He said he was born in April 6th to reporters. He would say he was born in the United States. He kind of created this myth. Where it is funny to, like, it's just, there's so much mystery around him. And in large part because he created all this mystery. Yeah. So, David Blaine, who knows what his real name is. But but this book about this French magician absolutely hooked Harry Houdini. Hook, line, and sinker. He started practicing tricks, reading more books. He started out with card tricks, right? He, he, at first, he was doing card tricks, which is kind of some entry-level magician work. Yeah, it's your classic mag- beginner magician. He was doing card tricks. Him and his brother would start to perform, his brother Theo, and they were doing that type of stuff, acrobats, card tricks. They had a sideshow, you know, kind of on the outskirts of the 1893 Chicago World Fair. And eventually they run into another performing group, the Laurel Sisters. Another great name. <laughs> and this is significant because one of the performers, Bess, Bess, she and Harry got married very quickly after a little bit of courtship. Um, and she actually, Harry's brother courted her for a little bit beforehand, Theo, and, but, you know, things didn't work out. Harry courts her, and eventually Harry kind of kicks his brother out, Theo, or Harry's career now becomes him and Beth. Beth? So I have a question. I actually don't know the answer to this. Does Theo take the Houdini last name as well? As a magician? As a magician. Or was it Theo Weiss and Harry Houdini brothers? I feel like he has to take the last name. I don't know. Maybe you can fact check this. But I do know uh, when Harry died, he gave, in his will, he left all his equipment, all his tricks, all his knowledge to his brother. And I would assume at that point you have to continue off the Houdini name because it carries so much weight. But at the time, I, I think they were called the Brothers Houdini, actually. That's what I have in my notes. So to me, it sounds like they both took the Houdini last name. He was known as Hardeen. Hardeen so Houdini? Or... Theo Theodore Hardeen. Okay. I bet you that's when, maybe that's when they split, because as we're saying here... Strapping looking lad. Yeah? I say so myself. I, back, in the, back in the late 19th century, they just dressed so nice. <laughs> He's wearing what, what could be a four-piece suit <laughs> in this photo. And that, this is a side note, but as we move forward, it's very interesting that if you go on YouTube... 
you can see this is like early, early video. You can kind of see early, early black and white video yeah. of Houdini doing uh, doing escapes and things like that. And it's uh, it's pretty cool that we're right at that. This is right at the cusp of film. Yeah, very early video, no sound, all black and white. Yeah, it, it is it is interesting. Yeah, so Beth and Harry, they became the new group. It instead of Harry performing with his brother, he's now performing with Beth who his brother also courted. So, you know, kind of interesting, a little... Different time. Different time. And they were had a great relationship, uh, Harry and, and Theo. And Bess's role, she would kind of sing and dance and create energy and momentum for when Harry performs his trick. Like, they, like she would come on the stage before she introduces him, get the crowd all excited. And so that's kind of their now act and again just always performing and they performed they performed for a while before they really had a break yep they did they performed a lot of things mainly acrobatics and magic tricks um but eventually they landed on what would become his specialty escapes escape <laughs> his escapes the big one that he first started marketing was his ability to get out of handcuffs which is pretty awesome very awesome very practical. Imagine arresting Harry Houdini. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sitting in the back of your uh, police wagon, and he's telling you, yes, put the cuffs on me. <laughs> yeah, just smirking at you. <laughs> smirking. Don't look, at, don't look in your mirror, because <laughs> at any point, I might be uh, at your throat, because my hands would be freed. Yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued, and this type of intrigue is what got people so interested in him, is he would go into a police station and he'd bring the newspapers and he would say to the law enforcement, bring me your handcuff, lock, lock me up, I'll, I'll escape. So, he's not faking it. He's That's how he gets his publicity. They would lock him up and he'd get out so quick. And then eventually people are like, he's hiding keys, this or that. So eventually he has to do it in his underwear. It's a killer publicity move. And he would go to a town and that's how he would create energy excitement for his show yeah he would have like an open invite to police departments be like take me to your jail put me in the jail cell and then i'll break out yeah and he always did and this is when you know he starts to get a little more fame and then martin beck who was the manager of a chain of circuits saw him and was like we want to use you on this chain of theaters and he says to Harry, but just do your escapes. Leave out the acrobats, the semi-decent card tricks. Mm. Like, stick to your moneymaker. And this was in the vaudeville, right? Yeah. The vaudeville. So the vaudeville, it was kind of hard to wrap my head around it. So it's basically like a chain of theaters, but they would do, it was like variety acts that they would do, which it's kind of something, I feel like that would be popular now if they had a similar thing now. Yeah. Where it was, uh, where they had like some sort of chain and then they had the traveling acts that went from between. They, maybe they do have something, but there's no set brand for it. Yeah, there's definitely no brand. It was a brand. It sounds good. I mean, it sounds a lot like a circus, you know, like a traveling circus, but it's definitely different because they have their own arenas. It's very well esteemed. And so this was his breakthrough. He gets a lot of publicity throughout the United States. And then a man who 
always likes publicity and his fame, wants to grow it in Europe. So he goes to Europe, and this is May of 1900, so he's about 26. He goes to Europe and, and does the same stuff, where he is just mainly escaping from handcuffs, and, you know, same thing. He's walking into law enforcement, doing it very publicly, out in the open. Mm-hmm. He says, bring me a pair of handcuffs, and I'll, and I'll break out. Yeah, he'll put it in the newspapers, like, anyone, bring me a pair of handcuffs and show up at the act, and I'll break out of them. And that was the thing about Houdini, was that a lot of the things that he would do, he would just go so over the top with his, uh, and be so exaggerated with how confident he was. He'd be like, I'll give you an award if you could, um, anytime he did anything underwater, he was like, if you could find a crack in what I'm doing to make it so I could breathe through it, then... I'll give you a thousand dollars cash right now, and people wouldn't be able to do it because he was—he was so confident, and he knew what to be confident about that he just created this uh, sense of security that people like really had no clue how he was doing. Yeah, exactly. And he—he he would, like you're saying, he would offer people tons of money if they could show up and best him. When he would, you know, lock himself in different contraptions or handcuffs, people could inspect the handcuffs and. To give an idea of how strong, exaggerated his advertisements was, later on he would get into these milk cartons that are about like, I'd say about like four and a half feet. They're, they're these big steel milk cartons. Yeah, giant, like really big milk jugs. Yeah. Not, and this was, it was kind of a weird concept to wrap my head around because I was thinking milk jug and you kind of think, yeah. You think like the milk crates <laughs> where the milkman brings them around and they drop one at each person's. But it was like that, except, I don't know, 50 times the size. Enough, yeah. uh, big enough that uh, he was five foot five. A yeah. five foot five guy could get into it. But barely. It was, pro- it was probably like four or five. It's shaped like a cart and it's bigger. And he would get in there with water. And this is later on. We're jumping ahead. But to talk about his advertisement, he would say, come watch me escape this milk jug filled with water or watch me drown in it. Like that was on his like posters <laughs> he would he was posting around. So one of them, he's making a lot of publicity in Europe to get back to the timeline. This guy says, I have these handcuffs. It took me five years to make. You know, no one can get out of them. Mm. And so this was a huge publicity, huge act, and it begins and Harry Houdini shows up. People can look at the curtains. And so usually he does most of his acts not in front of the curtains, but for this one with these, it became known as the mirror cuffs. He was behind the curtains, um, and it lasted like an hour. So most of the time, people are just looking at a curtain. I imagine he's grunting. Uh, yeah, he like bumps into the curtain maybe <laughs> a little bit, shows some shuffle every every uh, couple minutes. Yeah, he steps out after seven minutes and asks for cushions for his knees. They give him a cushion. He steps out a little bit later, maybe after half an hour, and he asks if the handcuffs can be taken off temporarily so that he can take off the jacket. And of course, the guy who took five years to make these handcuffs is like, I will if you admit defeat. <laughs> it's and, so slick. Yeah. It's so slick to, to come out and be like, uh, can we take them off briefly so I can <laughs> take, my, take my jacket off? Yeah, yeah. And the reason that they said no was because they didn't want him to see how the unlocking mechanism works. Yeah. Because a big thing with the handcuff escapes is 
different handcuffs have different locking and unlocking mechanisms. So if he gets to see how that key turns, then he might be able to, uh, that might aid him in some yeah, sort of way. Absolutely. And I agree with them not allowing him to do it. So he pulls out a knife he had in his pocket, puts it in his teeth, and somehow, like, cuts up, shreds up the jacket. With yeah, he cuts the sleeves off. Teeth. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, like a barbarian. Yeah. And, you know, the crowd erupts. He hide, He goes back behind the mirror. I mean, behind the curtain. And then near the end, his wife comes, supposedly, gives him, like, a kiss. He comes out. He's, like, you know, roughed up. He might be bleeding. He goes back behind the curtain. And then eventually he comes out and he's in tears, and it's a huge story. With the cuffs off. With the cuffs off, yeah. <laughs> With the cuffs off. With the cuffs off. Good point. I was crying of joy, not yeah, of being tears defeated. of joy. It was like seventy minutes total. Yeah. For him to get the cuffs off. Yeah. In this one in particular, and a lot of his acts have some controversy, but this one in particular, uh, one person, Martin Beck, the owner manager of the theaters we we're talking about. He wrote a book saying Houdini's wife had the key, like, in her lips, or she somehow slipped it into a water that they gave him. Mm. There's No one knows if this is true, and he even claims that Houdini was bested and that the wife had to beg behind the scenes. Others say it was prearranged, yeah. that Harry Houdini had visited this person. They knew that he was in the town where the person made the handcuffs. At this point, Harry Houdini wasn't even escaping from handcuffs for four or five years. So some people think it was kind of just a prearranged show. Yeah, he set the whole thing up. And he had the key the whole time. Yeah. And then the reason it took 70 minutes was just for dramatic effect. Yeah, which I kind of believe it. I, I, I don't see why not. He's a magician, so I, it's just kind of a publicity stunt. I don't, I don't, I don't see why he yeah. wouldn't do that. Yeah, and I think, I think it would go both ways sometimes with his handcuffs. He was super knowledgeable, and with the law enforcement, it was very authentic, and he escaped. But then also times, in this case, I think it was kind of prearranged, you know, more of a showman performance than uh, a feat or a trick. And, and worth noting, the, all these escapes, they took a huge physical toll on him. He would get bruised. He had a ton of physical ailments. People say he broke, like, every bone. He had to contort his body in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so after this European tour, he returns to America... And he starts stepping up what he escapes from. We talked about the milk tank filled with water. A lot of things involve water now. He would jump into a river with handcuffs, you know, go onto a bridge, rally up, mm -hmm. some excitement. Yep. And that is one that you can actually, if you look it up on YouTube, you can see a, a film, a black and white film of Harry Houdini standing on the bridge having the handcuffs be put on him, jumping off the bridge, and then the handcuffs no longer being on him. Yeah. As he gets out of the water. Yeah. He, sometimes he would be in like a wooden box with padlocks on it. He's always, his body's always handcuffed, and then he's in something else. And he would, like you're talking about, he'd have these open invitations where he would say, hey, try to lock me in anything. People would lock him in bags. One time in Boston, he got out of the belly <laughs> of a whale. Lock him in a bag. I yeah, like ropes. It just—it was like an open challenge. And again, a lot of this 
very genuine and he's escaping. And then others, people believe he would kind of set up with publicity, like, oh, these fishermen with their fish nets, they want to get their name out there and they work together. It, it sounds like it's pretty open for a debate. Mm. But he's just escaping from anything. Another huge publicity thing he did, which is similar to the law enforcement and in the public style, is he would hang from a crane upside down or hang from a skyscraper and he would be in a straight jacket. So here he is, you know, hanging from a skyscraper, hanging from construction equipment, upside down. Everyone can see him because he's at this tall vantage point, and he's, you know, upside down, blood rushing to his head in a straight jacket, and he wiggles around and escapes, and everyone sees him do it live. And this is another way he gained a ton of publicity. Yeah, it was, uh, the crowd loved it when he escaped from the straight jacket. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching a video of it, and he would spread his arms like Superman. It, it looks cool. And so, this is around 1905, 1910. And this is around the time the Wright brothers, who were playing, it's in the news, getting a lot of publicity. Harry Houdini wants in on the action. And he goes to Australia on a boat. They had a plane on the boat. Because he wants to get in the record books as the first person to fly a plane in Australia. Which is pretty epic. Very epic. He did it. He flew for 3.5 minutes, got 100 feet in the air. He flew a few more times in Australia and then never flew again. But again, he's a performer. He's getting in the history books. Although now... Uh, officially, Australia says there was flights before him. Yeah, but. there was one person who flew before him. But they only got 10 feet off, off the ground. Oh, come on. <laughs> and they went for a few hundred yards. But they but they technically did sustain flight. So Ten, they got in the record books. I think there's three people that are credited with... Uh, Houdini's one of the three people that are credited with like great feats in Australian flight early on. Yeah. But he does not hold any records currently. Yeah. Man, I want this airplane that flies 10 feet off the ground. That sounds like a Star Wars speeder or speed chaser or something. That sounds sick. It's not sick. <laughs> the, the airplanes. Like, have you seen the videos of the Wright brothers and stuff? No. They're, they're these huge contraptions, and they are going speed, and then they, they just use a little bit of lift to get off the ground, and then they just kind of, like, they kind of, like, glide <laughs> on the ground. And they look very dangerous. Like, if Harry yeah. Houdini was 100 feet in the air, yeah. he's lucky to be alive. Yeah. I'm imagining Toy Story, the falling with style. Do you remember that? No. Okay, Buzz Lightyear. He would he just launch stuff in the air and then be like, I'm flying. And everybody was like, no, he's falling with style. So that's what this sounds like. They're basically just falling <laughs> for like 100 yards. But 10 feet, if, you, if I could have... Well, that's the point. I think they have to maintain it. Okay. To be yeah. considered a plane and like propel, yeah. maintain speed and maintain the height so that it's not like they just like lift and then they like fall. Yeah. So yeah, he gets that under his belt, uh, Australian aviation legend. And then he sets his sights on the movies. Yeah. He's taken down flight <laughs> and now he's going to take down the movie industry. Yeah. And the master mystery is this kind of series in the movie theaters that he stars in. Basically, the plot of 
all of it. Again, they don't have any volume, but the plot of it all is he's trapped and in danger, and he gets out. No better man for the job than the ultimate escape artist. And again, these movies, no sound. You have orchestras playing. Very different watching it. His movie career didn't last uh, super long, and I, I like that he uh, when he when he gave up on the the movie career, he said it was because the profits were too small. <laughs> but I think his movies didn't really ever take off. Yeah, that master mystery where he escaped was the biggest, and then I think he did three more, and they all went downhill. But he's still he's got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, so he's touching a lot of industries here. Did you know? That on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, you can get oh man, you can get a star for doing different things. Really? So you can get a star for music. Okay. You can get a star for film. You can get a star for theater, mm-hmm. and you can get a star for uh, radio, maybe. Hmm. I don't know. I think Barbara Streisand has, is one. There's there's certain people that they have stars for multiple every, multiple types, and you can get a star. And if you have a star for every single type, you are like a superstar. Wow! I just I don't think they actually call you a superstar, <laughs> but you are a superstar. And I think Barbara Streisand is one of those people. Interesting. So, yeah, fun. I wonder what his was for. Probably theater. Definitely not movies. <laughs> yeah. And so this is also around the time the World War begins, and uh, Harry has a Jewish background. He feels he really wants to help with the war efforts. I even believe he tried to enlist, but they said he was too old at 40-something, which doesn't sound that old to me, but different time. So he would raise money. I mean, even now, I think you have to be, uh, to enlist to active duty, I think you need to be 35 or younger. Really? There, there are some 40-year-olds who would crush it out there. Oh, definitely. But, anyways, so he raised money for the war efforts is how he helped. And then he taught them how to escape from handcuffs. He would go to the military and teach them how handcuffs work and how to escape, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, practical use of his talents. And he also, just to point out, he, he would do a lot of good works, he would call them, and he performed in orphanages for free, he raised money for hospitals, he's kind of in his philanthropic stage of life now, in his 40s. Yeah. Another thing that he did, that I really, that he got into, that I really enjoyed, was he loved debunking mediums <laughs> and psychics. I, yeah, I love it. He would... He literally, a lot of the popular psychics and mediums of the time, like, he made a point to, like, go out and prove them as frauds. It was huge, yeah. He would bring newspaper reporters. He would go to a seance and be like, oh, you're talking to the dead? Like, okay, let's talk to my mom. And I'd be like, what's her maiden name? <laughs> <laughs> what did I get her for her eighth birthday? And they, he would just, obviously, they don't know. And he would kind of defraud them. And he made a big point of it, because I, I think people, almost to an alarming degree, were really believing these even spiritualists. Now. Yeah, even, even now, now. You, you see that. And the way that he said that he would eventually prove it true, 
he was like, if I'm debunking all these spiritualists, then the one way that we're going to say that it's true was that he told his wife, Bess, he said after he died, <laughs> that she could hold a seance, and that if he communicated to her the message, Rosabelle believed that he was actually communicating from the afterlife. But if it was anything other than that, then it wasn't real. Yeah. But if that was the message that he gave, yeah. then it was an actual, It was he was actually communicating from the afterlife. And he just told his wife. That was it. And do we know what happened? She did it for like 10 years, and it never happened. And then I think she, I, <laughs> there's like a quote where she said like, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. Which is fair, and then but I, I guess they're still they still hold seances today. Yeah. So, oh, a quick note on that: he must, she must not have told anyone this. Like, he was saying, if I communicate, this is what I'd say. She must have kept that to herself. Otherwise, obviously, someone could just fake it. Yeah. And just go into a seance, and no one, yeah, no one. Yeah. Harry so. Couldn't. So for 10 years, she gave him the chance to communicate from the afterlife, but yeah. uh, it did not happen. Yeah. At the start of it, he was genuinely interested in it and kind of curious if it could be true. And kind of how this all started was uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created the character Sherlock Holmes, his wife had a seance and believed she could talk to the dead. Mm. Harry goes to her is really upset about his mom passing, and she's Sir. I don't know what makes her Sir, but Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's wife. What makes you a Sir? Yeah. Uh, being knighted, a knighthood. Oh. From the United Kingdom. Damn. The Queen, knighted okay. by the Queen, makes you a Sir. Interesting. That makes mm-hmm. sense. And so his wife says she's talking to Harry Houdini's mom, and. She writes a cross on the top of the page. A cross is, means it's a good ghost. And Harry's like, in, in, in Harry's mind, he's like, but my mom's Jewish. <laughs> and then she writes everything in English that the ghost is saying, like channeling what the ghost is saying. And Harry's like, my mom doesn't know how to write English. <laughs> um, and so then it becomes a public feud where he told some people, wrote some articles, and his former friends, this creator of Sherlock Holmes and Harry Houdini, like publicly battle it out. And, and like you're saying, there are still seances today. Which I think is super cool. Yeah. I mean, the seance, the idea of the seance in general is pretty interesting, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And I, I would love to go to one for entertainment factor. And if anyone ever makes it a scientific study and like they can start proving some stuff, I'd be... Someone do that, but... I would say... In the meantime, I'm skeptical, obviously. I'm definitely skeptical, but if you were to take me to a cabin or something <laughs> like that, right. and, and it was dark, and we were at candlelight, <laughs> and there were um, four or five of my close friends there, and we were to hold a seance, I would be scared shitless. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd be so petrified. And so, so, petrified. so you got to believe a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean... Or else you wouldn't be afraid. If uh, if if you were a true skeptic, okay, you wouldn't okay. be afraid. Okay. Yeah, I I think there might be something there, where there's a little party that's like this could be real. And if, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the other funny thing is how he would debunk it is he would hold seances like he'd do it a performance and people were like it was so scary how real it was 
but then the second part of the performance, he would show what he did. And, like, he'd be like, okay, so this is why it's not real. Um, debunking, debunking of uh, spiritualists and mind readers and things like that, yeah. it's a very interesting topic. That uh, Yeah? Oh, I reckon there's the amazing Randy. He's a modern-day person who does similar things. A debunker? He's a debunker. Yep. The Amazing Randy. The Amazing Randy okay. is what he's called. Nice. And he does a similar thing. He had a TV show, I think back in the 90s, and where he uh, where he would debunk various magic tricks and, uh, and mediums and things like that. Like there was this one guy, I can't remember his name, but there was this one guy who could bend spoons yep. with his mind. Yeah. And... The amazing Randy just had him basically just gave him a spoon and was like bend it, and the guy couldn't. Yeah, and it was because the way that the spoons work is that he would just bend the spoons little by little, and the way that it works is I guess if you bend the spoon enough, it just becomes more and more brittle, and he had to, and so he could he could eventually just bend it with his fingers. Yeah, but Randy he normalized everything and just made it it just completely <laughs> embarrassed the guy on national television. Exactly. And a lot of times, these people who have these tricks will come up with excuses, being like, okay, right now I can't channel the ghost, they're upset. Or with, with this, be like, you know, I act like they have these powers that they can't predictably control. Mm. So that's kind of the reason why Comes we have. Ghost. Yeah, that's kind of the reason why we have the scientific method. If you can't <laughs> reproduce it. <laughs> but, super interesting topic. Which I think, and that kind of shows how impressive Houdini was. Mm-hmm. A lot of the ways that he could escape could do his escapes it was he would use those tricks he would do things like be like oh let me examine the key and if you just said no he'd be in big trouble but but he was so persuasive and he and he made it a point to make it so everything that he needed to control he did yeah and so at that point you think that he's not in control but really he is he's controlling the whole situation oh yeah everything is controlled and no he is interesting where it's kind of this blend between starting out as a magician to really he's just performing incredible feats, and he's not really hiding how he does it. Like him getting out of a straitjacket, hanging from like the sky, mm. he's just fucking wiggles his body around like a madman. He has like double jointed. He can bend his arms pretty crazy. He does it right in front of you. Yeah, it's a technique. Yeah, and it's kind of like David Blaine. A lot of people call him a magician, and really. He certainly is, but a lot of his feats are just like pure endurance and just amazing feats, you know? And Harry Houdini was that same way. And so then Harry goes to perform in Canada, and he's speaking at McGill University, talking about how spiritual is he's debunking them. And he's in a dressing room. Someone comes in and says, I hear you can take any punch to the stomach. Which is another one of his tricks. I know. He's got so many tricks. He not even got time for it all. <laughs> he also did one. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought of another one. He would call it like Chinese water torture, but he would hang upside down in a huge tub of water and people could see him handcuffed, hanging upside down. And he'd escape from the water and he'd be like, while I'm doing this, hold your breath with me. He'd try to do it in like three minutes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so another one of his tricks, getting punched in the stomach and someone comes in he's at McGill University in Canada and punches him in the stomach. It hurts a little more than usual and ruptures his appendix. Doesn't realize it at the time. He kept performing and then eventually 
even though he had like high fever, then eventually he realized something's really wrong. They take him to a doctor, and his appendix is burst. It's too late. He got an infection, and several days later, he dies on Halloween at age fifty-two. And so he, so there's a couple things about how this all went down that probably could have prevented his death. So when the student punched him in the stomach. He was sitting. He had broken his ankle doing uh, some sort of escape. So he had a broken ankle, so he was sitting in a chair. Yeah. And so <laughs> the kid started punching him. And then he told him to stop. Mm-hmm. And then he was. And then he basically said, oh, well, if I was standing, I'd better be able to brace for it. And just the way, I don't know, the way that it works, he, he just wasn't really able to brace for it correctly. And that was what ended up rupturing his appendix so first off that it was kind of a it was kind of a weird situation where he actually sustained the injury and then he goes out performs that night he goes multiple days just ignoring the pain that he's feeling in his appendix yeah his appendix is ruptured his fever goes up and up and up yeah eventually he goes out before he goes to the hospital he has a performance that night he blacks out he passes out during the performance yeah. And then comes to and finishes. Oh my goodness! Yeah. All, all with like 102, 103 degree fever, and then eventually, yeah. it was it was beyond repair. Yeah, and I hear a lot of stuff surrounding when he was punched. I also heard like you're saying that he was sitting up and he went to stand up and he caught him at the wrong time. I mean, who knows what the truth is? But and, and that reminds me of a another story of his. So he when he these milk cartons where he'd fill it with water, get so tight. The milk cartons would be surrounded with chains and locks. Then he'd go behind a curtain and escape. Mm-hmm. There was someone there with like an axe in case something went wrong. You know, he probably tells them, "I can hold my breath for this amount of time." Um, and one time, they did it with beer, and because there was CO two was releasing into the tank, I'm pretty sure he passed out and had to use the axe. So that was, you know, the one time it you know, something he did not control for. <laughs> Amazing feats by Harry Houdini. Yeah, yeah, he's remembered as a great inventor because a lot of the things that he did and a lot of the way the magic works is it's a lot of invention and uh, oh, yeah. what what looks when you look at it from one angle as magic, there's a lot of moving parts that make it so everything is. Yeah, exactly. So I have a question for you. Okay, so you have a question for me. And this is a podcast question. We're kind of going behind the curtain, so to speak. <laughs> and are we willing to discuss how he did it on some of these uh, on some of these tricks? Because I have a list of of some of his of some of his magic tricks, and we can uh, we can explain the solutions. Absolutely, the statue of limitations is we've passed it. It's yeah, just, the magic illusionist world—they need to come up with new tricks. Let's let's. if if you're still banking on these tricks from a hundred years ago i mean even then i would say let's we could still keep the illusion alive in theory but i i I wanted to know as i was reading about this i wanted to know how he did it yeah if you want to be lied to you can shut off the podcast now no i will say it's like science you (laughs) you build on the shoulder of giants so like the magicians should show what they did show their techniques then a new magician will come along and make it even better by going, ooh, this is how I can tweak it. So we need to, this information needs to be out there. That was very poignant, as yeah. we can say. Yeah. Build on the shoulder of giants. That was nice. 
Okay. So I have five tricks that will kind of talk out the way that he did it. Okay. Okay. So five tricks where we can kind of go through how Houdini did it. Yeah. First, the hanging straitjacket escape. And I'll give you the chance to kind of guess how he did nice. it. Nice. Okay. I mean, I've seen him do it. He fucking wiggles like a madman and he gets his arms over his head. I assume the straitjacket's real. I assume it's not like a mechanical adjustment. So I think he just fucking gets out of a straitjacket by wiggling like a madman. What's, what's the real secret there? So what he would do is he would cross his arms one over the other to make more space when they put the straitjacket around. So if you think if you're folding your arms, if you're folding your arms one on top of the other, mm-hmm. your arms are closer to your body. Okay. The furthest point is closer to your body. Yeah. What he would do is he would put his stronger arm, his right arm, further on top of his left arm so that he could get it further away from his body. Yeah. So that created a little bit more space when the jacket was, was tightened. And then as the as they kind of brought it around his back to, to tie it and fasten it shut, mm-hmm. he would take a deep breath mm-hmm. to expand his body as much as possible. So he has his arms over each other, and then he takes a deep breath, and it creates, and then he would even grab the straitjacket mm-hmm. to like make it so it was, he would pull it a little bit tighter. Yeah. And then, because then when he released it, it would then loosen. Yeah. So by doing all of these things simultaneously, when, the straight, when they backed away, he could kind of take his breath out, he could let go, and then it would create enough slack that he would be able to get one arm free at a time. There was like a pocket of slack that he would use to kind of maneuver around, and then he would yeah. get his left arm free, and then he would then pull the jacket in a certain way, and he could get his right arm free over his shoulder within the jacket, yeah. using the extra space that he created Interesting. as he led, yeah. as he led into it. And also, if he needed to, there were a couple other things that he could do. So if he needed to, he could dislocate his shoulder to make it so he had even more space. He didn't usually have to do it that way, though. And then also, he could conceal a knife and, like, cut the straps if he he needed to as well. Nice. So he's got a few plans of attack. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, maybe that'll be useful sometime. Hopefully not. If you do need this, if you do need this solution, you probably should prepare now because it's going to come at you faster than you expect. Yeah. Uh, so the next trick, I, we haven't talked about it so far. It, it was called walking through a brick wall. Have you heard about this uh, this trick? I haven't heard this trick. Okay, so back to the straight jacket. <laughs> We're going to try this. We're going to go on Amazon. Oh, wow. We're going to find a straight jacket, and I think you can do it still. <laughs> <laughs> you think you I can do it? You were kind of acting it out. I know people can't you see it. you need to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> Sla- All right, well, uh, Slavo is going to get out of the straight jacket. He's going to try. Okay. I mean, we... <laughs> Quick accept by me. <laughs> yeah. But you have to try it too. We could both do it. You're stronger than me. I don't know. And potentially more flexible. I got it. We'll figure it out. Okay. To be determined. I'll try. Walk. (laughs) So the next one is walking through a brick wall, which is basically he would take a 10 foot brick wall on stage and it was perpendicular to the audience. So the audience could see both sides of the brick wall. And presumably it was backed against the wall so that you couldn't go. Um, because what the trick is, is he would go from one side of the wall to the other. Yeah. And so they have the brick wall, and then to prevent the use of trap doors, they had this big rug that they put underneath the brick wall, too. So it was like one continuous rug 
that so he couldn't have a trap door on one side and then a trap door on the other side. What they would do is they would wheel out a screen in front of him on one side, and then they'd wheel out a screen on the other side, and then after a couple seconds, they would move both screens, and he'd be on the other side of the wall. Yeah. But I gotta be honest, any trick that involves being behind a curtain, I'm like less impressed with. It's true. It's it's hard, though. A yeah. lot of the tricks involve the uh, No, it is, curtain. it is. So, the question is, how does he do it? Yeah, how do you think he does it? Dude, okay, see, like, no offense, but if you have a fucking curtain, you could just, like, walk around the back. And okay, like, so that was what I was thinking, too. <laughs> And there, uh, there wasn't enough information on it that they have to make it so you can't just simply walk from one yeah. side to the other. I, I There's some sort of way that they're they're proving that you can't walk from yeah, one yeah. side to the other. I mean, I feel like it's probably something either mechanical where he's going underneath it through, mm-hmm. like, they have, like, trap doors on the bottom. Or what if there's something, you know, some mirror at play or it looks like there's actually, like, you think you see Ooh, the end of the thought. wall, but there's, like, another wall back thought. there. And he's just, like, going back around. So how do you do it? There's two different variations of it. Yeah. So the first variation is with the rug, and the rug is the key. So the rug, it, he, and this is this is classic overconfidence. He uses the rug as a way to show that there is no trapdoor. But really, the rug is the trapdoor. Yeah. And the way that it works is when they wheel them both on both sides, both of the screens on both sides, the rug trapdoor releases underneath the rug and the rug kind of the middle of the rug drops down and it creates like a hammock and he just drops in, into the hammock rolls over and then they undo the hammock bring it straight back up and he's on the other side yeah cool. the other variation which i thought was cool because sometimes they use like glass they put a pane of glass on the bottom to make it so like even that wasn't possible mm-hmm. but in that way they would roll out one screen and then they would, and then they would use that screen and just move it over, and then, and then after a couple seconds, he would come back. And for that, what, and I really like this, they would roll out the one screen, and he would put on the clothes of the workers that were rolling it out, and then he would he would come out and roll it across to the other side somehow, oh my and then he would put, go put his other clothes back on. Like really fast, hidden in plain sight. That's I love. That's my favorite. That's my favorite one. He's actually just like a stage man, and he yeah, like a stage man. Like a, yeah, he's like wheel, wheel, the big screen. You look very nondescript. Yeah, but no one's like that's fucking Harry. <laughs> yeah, he is in disguise. That's hilarious. I love that one. Cocky little guy. So uh, the next one is just the escape from any handcuffs. His different methods for escaping from handcuffs. Okay, I think some of them he had like or a key or something to maneuver and I think he knew how and I think he would store it you know wherever his mouth just he'd store stuff I think also maybe um he's got dainty wrist me <laughs> no I feel like maybe he wiggles it out um, I imagine a lot of picking the lock honestly what is it? I've thought about this, and anybody listening, you can kind of take your hand, and you can try to make your hand as small as possible. I don't, yeah. I just don't know if that's possible. If somebody ties, yeah. or if somebody fastens a handcuff yeah. around your wrist, I just don't know if it's possible without just smashing your hand to pieces to be able to get it through. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what they do in the yeah. movies. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's more, I was thinking like something like with the straight jacket, where it's like, when they put it on, you like make your, somehow make your wrist seem It's not bigger. a bad thought. Um, so there was a couple ways that he would do it. He would, um, well, 
he was super familiar with handcuffs, and so yeah. he would be able to recognize what kind of handcuff it is. Yeah. So he could he could kind of like hide a pick on himself. Um, he invented a belt that, and this is how him being an inventor kind of comes into play. Yeah. He invented a belt that had little secret compartments in it with lockpick tools. So because a lot of the times when he's getting out of the handcuffs, he's behind the screen, which yeah. you don't trust. But yeah. Yeah. and so he. They pat him down. They check his mouth. Everything. He kind of guides them exactly where to check him. And then in his belt buckle, he has the little lock picking tools, and then he can pick. He can pick any handcuff lock. Yeah, interesting. Because I, I did see some video of him where he was in his underwear. So that I wonder, like, maybe it was in his like underwear, <laughs> so the, the elastic around his underwear or something. So he had a challenge that he could with the the mirror lock that he could the mirror handcuffs that he could. Any freak cuffs is what they call them, which is where it was one of a kind handcuffs. Yeah. They, if he ever had one of those, he would insist that they, uh, he would insist that they let his assistant, who was his wife, examine the key. They had this huge compartment of, or bag or whatever, of keys, different types of keys. Mm-hmm. And so when she went to examine it, she would swap it out for another key that looked exactly like it, yeah. and then she would give him the actual key, <laughs> and then he would, and then he would escape that way. You got whatever tricks. So the milk carton escape for how he did that. Yeah. So from what I saw, this was always again behind a curtain, right? Yeah. So in my head, again, it's like something mechanical. Like, is there just like a door he's like walking out of? Because when he would come out, all the locks would still be there. So I don't think they're undoing all those locks at the top of the carton. Yeah. So I think there's either like some door on the side or at the bottom and he gets out somehow. Um, or they like have like another milk carton in the back and they like swap them. Or, I don't know. What, what a, yeah, what is it? So the trick for this one was that the, the top of the milk carton the rivets that were used to seal the top, mm-hmm. there was this. There was a part of it that looked like it was just one hundred percent like welded shut, yeah. but it actually wasn't at all, and it was greased. So because he would invite people, he would say, "Oh, come yeah. and check it out," yeah. and it looked so real and, and like I don't know, maybe rusted over and things like that. That people yeah. and it would be greased, so they couldn't grab it and like pull it and tug it, <laughs> and so um, there was just one part that was. That was actually not secure, yeah. and that would be the way that he would get out. Yeah. He would look at it that way. It's so interesting when you have people come up because it's like everyone knows there's some trick, but you still can't find out what it is. Yeah, exactly. It's just, and that's like you're saying, kind of the inventor. He invents a way to do this trick in such a way that no one really knows how he does it. And then the last one is the Chinese water torture cell. Okay. Which is where, as you said before, He's hanging by his feet through the with these like mahogany uh, foot locks. He's hanging upside down, and then they drop yeah. him into water. Yeah. And uh, and then he has to get out somehow from being underwater. Yeah. This one, not behind a curtain. I think it is behind a curtain, based on how they describe what the way does. that he gets out. I think it has to be behind a curtain because the so. The water is filled to the brim yeah. of the tank. Yeah. yeah. How does he get out? I do remember hearing this one. He would get out like pretty quickly and then like chill behind the curtain just to like create suspense. <sighs> okay, so he's also handcuffed. I mean, he just gets out of that. You know, whatever way he gets out of handcuffs. 
Jesus, which we already touched upon. Who? Do, what, do they pull him out, or does he get out through the side or the bottom? So, the way that it works on this is it's kind of it's, it's two different things are going on at the same time. First, the mahogany foot blocks. When he when he gets fastened into those, and then there's a clasp that they that they lock it in place or something like that into what he's being held to. When that goes, it actually loosens up his feet a little bit. So when they drop him into the water, he basically has the space to get his feet out from the mahogany footlocks. So the footlocks are mechanically designed in a way that he can get his feet out pretty quickly. So even if he's handcuffed, he gets out of the handcuffs because he's Harry Houdini. He can easily get out of the footlocks. And then it's just a matter of how does he get out of the water because he's underwater the whole time basically the way they describe it is that the foot contraption that he's dropping in on it's deep set so that when it drops him into the water water overflows and then it and then it kind of sets back up to the top so there's an uh, air pocket at the top so he is doing everything underwater and then he like goes up and gets his breath for air and then he can just kind of I was wondering that, so he kind of, he does like almost like an ab exercise, like pulls himself up to the top. Yeah, well, he actually, he gets his feet free, and then he pulls his feet into his chest, and he oh, can actually okay. like roll over, and then yeah. and then get his head up to the top, and then he like catches his breath, because he's undoing the handcuffs, because I imagine for the first part, they drop him in the water, and then he's just yeah. shaking around or whatever, and then they put the screen over, and then he comes out, and he's fine. Yeah. So he's holding his breath for an extended period of time, but he can get his feet free easily, then he can rotate, and then he can go up and catch his breath, and then he can just kind of climb out. Interesting. So this is this is the secret sauce. And the one of the cool things is that magicians can like buy and sell tricks. I know. I saw that. I was like, that's so interesting. So, yeah, I don't because it's you can buy and sell tricks, and like sometimes people are accused of stealing tricks from each other and things yeah. like that. Yeah, he notably had a lot of imitators with handcuffs and all that, and he was very litigious and would sue all these imitators. Oh yeah, he he was so powerful within the magic industry. He was the president of Martinka and Company, which is the oldest magic company in America, and he was also like an active member of the Freemasons in New York. So he was like just this ultra powerful <laughs> force in the 1920s, where he, it was almost like maniacal is how it is yeah, like how wow. it seems is that he like he really had a stranglehold over the the magic industry yeah and then in the freemasons that's uh, that's suspicious what's going on there i don't know and oh did you read about the about how he talked to the daughter of uh Udent, who's the magician that he's named after he talked to the daughter and like tried to get her blessing as the uh, follow-up to her father and she basically told him to buzz off really and then he like went back and then said that Udan is like not impressive yeah <laughs> I did know he went to Udan's grave and he would visit a lot of graves oh yeah he he asked her for permission to go to the grave yeah to visit the grave out of res- to pay his respects yeah and she said no yeah. it's so weird move all around and then a pretty spiteful move it sounds like when he's all now he trashes his former like hero because the daughter doesn't give him the blessing to go to the grave. But yeah, he was... And he went anyways. He went yeah, to the grave oh, yes. Yeah. He, he went to a lot of graves of 
famous magicians, just famous people in general. Pretty uh, amazing figure. Yeah, very interesting guy. Do you have a quote to leave us on there about Harry Houdini? A quote by Harry Houdini. Uh, yes. What the eyes see and the ears hear, the mind 